Hey, it's just me today. I thought I'd talk about systems theory today. What do you say? What do you say? This is the podcast called Psychology in Seattle. I'm your host, Dr. Kirk Honda. I'm a professor and a licensed therapist. If you like us, please go to go to our website and donate. A few of you have responded to that, which is always pleasant and appreciated. You can review us on iTunes. That kind of helps us with our iTunes ratings. And you can email us at contact at psychologyinseattle.com or you can go to our website, psychologyinseattle.com and fill out the form to send us a message. Also, you can like us on Facebook if you want to participate in our weekly Tuesday Tough or Bluff games. I thought I would just yammer at you about a few things that were on my mind today. For instance, I want to talk about systemic thinking And some people are very aware of what systemic thinking is and systems theory, and some people are not. It's a very complex theory, and I often describe it to my students and supervisees as a paradigm shift. That's a cliched statement, but it really took a long time for me to become accustomed to it. And it had to be explained to me multiple different ways by multiple different people. And I had to read about it in multiple different places. And I had to try it out in various different applications. And over the span of the last 20 years, I feel like I sort of understand it. So I'm not going to be able to explain it fully in this venue, but let me try. So there is a dichotomy sometimes discussed between linear and systemic. So there's linear thinking and linear explanations and systemic explanations. So let me just describe linear because sometimes it helps to understand what linear means as opposed to, as opposed to systemic. So let's say we have a teenager and he's being defiant of his parents and we're looking for a reason as to why he's being defiant. Well, a linear explanation is that he's being defiant because he's making bad choices. So it's a linear perspective in that he that the cause is linear. He it, the cause originates from him and the the sequence of events f- flows from that causality, if that makes any sense. I'm sure there are better philosophical ways of describing it, but and it'll, maybe it'll become clear as I go into st- systemic stuff. Another linear perspective as to why a teenager would be defiant is because he has low self-esteem. So because the teenager has low self-esteem, he is being defiant of his parents. So now these explanations aren't bad. They're not inaccurate. They're not unhelpful. They're just linear. They're just linear in their philosophical underpinnings. Now, in systemic theory, a potential explanation for a teenager that is being defiant is that the teen is being defiant because he has been elected by the system to distract from the overall insecurity in the family attachment. So let me just say that there's a lot of detail in there. So, so one potential way of languaging a systemic perspective as to why a teenager w- would be defiant is that he's doing these things because the system as a whole has unconsciously elected this teenager to provide a distraction from the overall insecurity in the family. So let's say we have a family that is having difficulties for whatever reason meeting each other's attachment needs. They feel insecure about their relationships with each other. And this is a very difficult thing to fix for them. 
they are having a lot of hard they, they're having a hard time fixing that they're trying but they don't even necessarily know that that's what the problem is they just don't feel very good about themselves and about their family and they're they're really trying to figure out a solution unconsciously and consciously and so what families will sometimes do is they will look toward, and this is all an unconscious process, toward people in the family to provide a distraction from that difficulty so that they don't have to focus on that difficulty. So without a distraction, the family has to sit there and think, boy, our family really sucks and we don't feel very good about ourselves and we're not very close. We don't seem to love each other very much. But if a teenager starts being defiant, well, that draws a lot of attention to that child and takes away from the anxiety of having to sit there and acknowledge that they don't like their situation. So the system as a whole has elected that teenager, but also it's important to point out that the teenager also volunteers for that at the same time. Some children and some family members are clearly elected without them volunteering for the position, but usually it's an effective and helpful way of seeing it in that the person who has been elected to that role has also volunteered for that role. So in this way, it's, it's systemic, it's not linear. So we don't have a linear explanation for that. For instance, the teenager has low self-esteem. That's why he's behaving badly or behave, misbehaving. In the systemic explanation, it's the system that has a problem in its routines or in the way that it, the way that the family bonds, the way that the family meets their attachment needs. And so the whole system, the way it interacts and the way that communication goes back and forth between people and the way that each individual perceives their place in the system and the way that the family dances, it produces a teenager that is defiant and that that defiance is part of the family dance or the family routine. And without understanding the system routine, without understanding the system homeostasis or the system stability, without understanding the way that the system is, the pattern of the family, you can't really understand that, that teenager's defiance. And so, again, so just to review, a systemic explanation looks at the entire system and tries to provide an explanation as to why something is happening. Whereas a linear perspective looks at linear types of causalities. Because the child has low self-esteem, that produces him you know, feeling bad about himself, and in order to get self-esteem, he, he needs power, and so he fights back with his parents, and that makes him temporarily feel better, but ultimately, again, hurts his self-esteem in the end. So... It's a that's more of a linear perspective. Now, one could argue that if you start expanding that explanation into the whole family, you could make it into a systemic explanation. But just as a way I said it, it would be characterized as linear. So, again, when I talk to my students, what I say is that systemic theory and systemic explanations are not privileged, are not better than linear perspectives. It's just that Linear perspectives are very easy for us as Americans or perhaps in other cultures to derive. We're very good at developing simple linear explanations as to why something is happening. Someone punched me in the face. I have pain. The pain must be due to the person punching me in the face. Let me give you another example that I often give in class when I'm teaching systems theory. So back, I don't know, 50, 100 years ago or something – in Yellowstone National Park, 
there was this problem with wolves. And so the, the wolves were seen as being a problem to tourism and to other kinds of things. I don't know exactly what the exact problem was. Maybe hunting, maybe a wolf was scaring some, some picnickers or something. And so what they decided to do was to hunt the wolves and to cut their population back. And so they went on this whole campaign to get rid of the wolves. Well, what happened was because the wolves are a part of a system, when you affected one element of the system, then it has a ripple of effects throughout the system. And things that you wouldn't intuitively be able to come up with. So, you know, all the people that decided let's hunt the wolves – um, and I'm, I'm not even sure if this story is apocryphal, by the way. So if someone decides to fact check this, um, I'm not even sure if everything I'm about to say is factual. But for the purpose of this demonstration, um, just go with me on this. So they weren't able to see the system because systems thinking is difficult. It's easier to be linear. We have a problem with wolves. Someone complained about wolves. Well, let's kill them. That's our solution. Some, you know, if, 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 if we're having a, 10 problems with wolves and we kill the wolves – then we won't have to. We won't have those ten problems anymore. Well, what they don't think is is well, what 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 effect will this have on the system? That they didn't even ask that question apparently. So, or at least the people in power didn't ask that question. So what ended up happening was, so what ended up happening was the deer population exploded because the deer were being hunted by the wolves, and since there were no more wolves or very few wolves, the deer population exploded. Also, the deer were less afraid of the wolves and therefore were able to graze in areas that they would not have normally. One of the places that where wolves like to hunt is near the flatlands where there isn't a lot of scrub, like the grasslands and this kind of stuff. And so they will go by the river and, and they will attack the, the deer when they come to drink or something. And so after the wolves are taken away... The deer, you before the wolves were taken away, the deer used to hide in the in the hills. But as the wolves were taken away, the deer were no longer afraid of the wolves and were free to roam everywhere, and they grazed everywhere. And so they ended up changing a lot of the the plant life because they would eat the bushes and they'd eat the grass and they'd eat this. And so the area around the rivers ended up becoming. Um, Deplanted the the plants that were normally there were being eaten by the deer, and what that did is it loosened up the soil, and so when it would rain, the soil would erode and go into the river, and not only does that destroy the soil for other plants to grow in, but now we have a problem in the river where the river ecology is you know altered and damaged. The fish life suffer, the various microbes and blah blah blah, all those kinds of things start to suffer. And, and so on. So, so after, I don't know, 10, 20, 30, 40 years or something, the ecology of the park started to really suffer. And all these really, you know, unfortunate, un, undesirable things started happening to the system. And then as and then systemic thinkers came in and said, hey, uh, 
I know why I have a I have a theory as to why this happened. I have a, I have an hypothesis as to why this happened because I'm a systems thinker. Because you took the wolves away, it did blah 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 blah. So we need to reintroduce wolves back in, even though the wolves were create some problems. Overall, they they solve a lot of problems, and we need to return the system to homeostasis. We need to turn the the system to balance, and so they return the wolves back. The wolves start to hunt the deer. The deer population drops. The deer population also goes into where they used to go in terms of grazing. The foliage around the river start to return. The soil doesn't erode so much anymore. The, The fish life and the water life return, and the balance is returned. So in, in this is a long way of demonstrating that systems are like a web, they'll call it, that you when you pull on one part of the web, it, it affects the entire web. And, and family systems are the same way, and people are the same way. And so whenever I see a client and they present a problem to me, one of the lenses that I look through is a systemic lens. I'm trying to figure out, well, what is their system like? And what role does this problem play in that system? And how can I treat that system? Even if I'm just seeing an individual, I still will think on a systemic basis. But sometimes in order for me to treat that one person that came into therapy, I'm going to have to see everybody. And so as a couple and family therapist, as I am, and in the program that I teach, we have that option. We have the option to see individuals and we have the option to see families as well. Because if you ignore that piece of it, sometimes you will not be able to affect change. So so that's a long explanation of, of linear versus systemic thinking. Other kinds of phrases that I might put out there is is that typically in systems thinking, it's easier to not blame any individual. One person comes into therapy with you and they say, oh, my husband, he's a big jerk face. And I don't like him. And he he's very um, lazy, shall we say? He's very lazy, and he doesn't he doesn't do anything with himself, and he doesn't he doesn't do chores and that sort of thing. So a linear perspective would would dictate that we might see the husband as having something wrong with him, and that we need to change him. We need to get him to be more motivated. We need to help him with his motivation. He might be depressed. These kinds of things. Now these aren't bad perspectives, they're not unhelpful perspectives, but perhaps if we can bring the husband in or maybe even just interview the wife in a more detailed way, we might be able to figure out that it's an it's a communication issue or a systems issue between the wife and the husband in that the husband is being lazy, sure, and he's being he is being um he he's having a hard time motivating himself is perhaps a better way of putting it. And the wife is being controlling and critical of him. So if we talk to him, he might say, yeah, well, sure, I have a hard time motivating, but sometimes it's because I'm worried that my wife is going to criticize what I'm about to do. So I just figure, why start, you know? And so we have a, a systems issue here. Because the wife is critical, the husband has trouble motivating himself. And because the husband has trouble motivating himself, the wife becomes critical. And so they both cause each other at the same time. It's mutual causality or circular causality or a recursive cycle. 
And so when we understand how systems operate, the family dance and how the homeostasis is and how feedback mechanisms work, then we have a better grip on what the problem is and we can, and we can intervene more effectively as therapists. You know, if you, if you just take the linear perspective of the husband is lazy and so we have to, you know, try to get him to motivate himself, then, then that will miss the larger issue of the way that these two people interact with each other. So if, for instance, we can get the wife to be less critical and to communicate in a more effective way, in a more compassionate way, and we can get the husband to also communicate in a more effective way about his feelings, but also have, uh, but also be able to motivate himself. If we do both of these things at the same time, then a series of events will occur in all likelihood between these two people that they'll establish a new routine, that they'll establish a new homeostasis, that morphogenesis will will occur and a change will occur, a second order change will occur in the family system that will result in a new routine in one in which the husband can speak for himself and also find the motivation and the wife can trust him and communicate to him about her thoughts. You know, maybe she has thoughts about how he should do the chores, but she can communicate that in a way that doesn't devalue him or result in him being unmotivated. And so, um, so that's, you know, in a nutshell, systems thinking. Now, I will say that sometimes systemic thinking is really not helpful. For instance, when it comes to abusive relationships, it's not helpful to see them as a, a system uh, in the classic sense. In that, and this was a mistake that early systems theorists and early family therapists made, is that they wanted to see all situations as a systemic problem and really devalued any linear perspective. And also, a lot of the early family therapists were white males and therefore just came from that privilege and didn't necessarily have the experience that would help them to empathize more with abuse survivors or victims or whatever you want to call them. And so, for instance, if you have an abusive mother in a family and she is a tyrant in the family and the husband and the rest of the family are all terrified of the mother and the mother is emotionally abusive, she flies off the handle, you don't really know the, the next thing she's going to do, then a, a systems purist would come in there and say, okay, well, we're not going to blame the mom. The mom has been elected to act as the controlling person. And what are what is everyone else doing that is helping to perpetuate that behavior? Now, feminists and other people like myself would say that that perspective is problematic in that it blames the victims for the abuse for the abuser's behavior, and that is in in my view, philosophically not helpful. And so systems theory breaks down under uh, abusive relationships. So, so this brings me to my other point because I've been talking with a lot of supervisees and a lot of students about systems theory and, and how I can help them with this. And so I just thought I would blab again about some of this stuff. Some people struggle with systems thinking 
because they want to continue to scapegoat someone in the family, whether it's someone that they're treating or just someone that someone else is talking about. You know, someone comes into you and as a therapist and they're complaining about someone in their life. Well, it's, you know, it's very tempting to want to bond with that person as they complain. And it's very tempting to get on board with their perspective and to also become in alignment with that person against the person that they're complaining about. For instance, let's say, you know, you have a gay couple, man comes in, is complaining about his husband, and you never talk to the husband. And over time, you might have a very skewed opinion about that the husband, and that's what the system has elected you to become now. And that's another thing that postmodernists provided us is the notion, the very astute notion, that therapists are not outsiders to the system. That once they, once the family or the individual has entered therapy, the therapist has now become a part of the system. They're not, they're not an objective outsider. That the therapist is invited into the system and the therapist actually moves into the system. And the therapist now becomes a, a role in the family and becomes a part of that web, becomes a part of that family dance. And so sometimes when we become engulfed or enmeshed or fused with a family system, we lose our perspective. Or when we, we become so, so engaged or so induced through projective identification to feel particular feelings, it's hard for us to, quote-unquote, become objective. Now, the whole argument that we can become objective is problematic, but I hope you get my meaning. And it's hard to see the system through a systemic lens when you have been fused with the system. And so I've been talking with a number of supervisees and students about this, and and they're struggling with it naturally. I mean, I struggle with it. When they present cases to me and I start to talk with them about the possibility that they have become enmeshed with the system and that their counter-transference is making it difficult for them to be objective, then they sometimes look at me with this face like, okay, uh, I don't think you're right, but you're my supervisor and you're my teacher, so... I have to listen to you. <laughs> and and I look at them and I think, okay, I don't I'm not quite sure if they are on board with me or if they're just appeasing me or what. But the the it's, you know, the notion that all of your thoughts and all of your all of your judgment calls and all of your analyses are free from influence from the family system is unreasonable. Of course, Everything that you think and do with a client is going to be affected by the fact that you have joined with the system. And that is why we consult, and that's why we have supervisors. Our industry, our field, is well known, or at least I hope it is, for the way in which we consult and seek supervision. There are people who have been therapists for 30 years and still seek consultation and still have supervisors because they know the value of that because of this very issue. Countertransference gets in the way. It's, it's bizarre how when I have a problem with a client 
And I feel like there's just no answer. There's just, there's no way out of this issue and there's, there's nothing I can do. And then I present and to somebody consult and then they, you know, say a few things and I'm like, oh yeah, why didn't that occur to me? I mean, I'm, you know, I'm an experienced therapist. I've been at this for 20 years and I teach this stuff. And so I feel like I've heard every single piece of advice or, you know, I've, I've heard all the sort of consultation things. And yet when I hear it, I say, why didn't that occur to me? Well, countertransference and enmeshed with the system and being elected to a particular role in the, in the family web. So if you're a student out there, or if you're one of my students, because I know some of my students listen to this, just, you know, understand that it's reasonable that you would struggle with this and also understand that your first impulse and your first analysis of a situation is likely to have some issues and that's okay. And that's, you know, it's all part of the part of the experience of being a therapist. Incidentally, this is just one of the models I use. Systems theory is just one of the models I use. I I feel like it, it illuminates a lot of untapped treatment foci and it opt, it often provides a helpful perspective to me, but it's not the only way that I see situations. I also look through a psychodynamic lens, which is my main lens, and a relational psychodynamic lens. I also have a lot of humanistic lenses that I look through, cognitive lens, cognitive therapy lenses, behavioral therapy lenses, um, feminism, multiculturalism, social constructionism, all those kinds of isms, definitely incorporate a lot of them. And, and systems theory is one of them. And just to wrap up the discussion here about systems theory, there are a lot of areas within systems theory that I talk about with my students. What? My cat wants to be a part of the podcast. What? What are you trying to tell the listeners? So other areas in systems theory that I talk about as a, different from the web idea and the, the whole or the sum of the parts, the whole is greater than the sum of the parts. I never know how to say that idiom. But anyway, um, other areas are like family life cycle. So most people understand individual life cycles, you know, like, okay, I'm a teenager now. I, I'm struggling with my identity and I'm thinking about the future. And okay, I'm a parent with a young child and we have similar kinds of tasks that we have to do. And so there's individual life, life cycle issues, but there's also family life cycle issues. So, you know, when a family becomes an an empty nest, shall we say, there's different tasks that are involved. For instance, often involved in the empty nest phase, empty nest phase is that the parents are suddenly faced with the fact that they have to face each other for the first time in a, for, for many families, not all, not all families. But when the, when the children are no longer there, the parents are left with themselves often. And often marriages will go through a crisis at that time. And in my experience, about half survive and half do not. And the ones that survive are the ones that manage to go through this phase effectively have they they enter a wonderful time of their lives together and have a deep deep marital relationship that they can build upon for the next you know 30 40 years and for the parents that 
that don't navigate this, they you know might divorce or they might just have a very, very distant relationship moving forward. Now these aren't failures, but it is you know a bit of a shame because it's a total normal phase for marriages to go through. And usually partners in these situations, they want to navigate it well and find it difficult to. And when they don't seek therapy, for instance, <laughs> just a little plug for couples therapists out there, they have you know a harder time. Anyway, so, so there's family life cycle and there's transgenerational patterns. For instance, like I talked about Bowen, you can have differentiation levels that can be passed down or different triangles that can be passed down. There's also the idea of communication. Communication is a big topic in systems and, and in family th- therapy theory. Uh, the way that people communicate, what they communicate, how they communicate, the things that are communicated, the things you're intending to communicate. A lot of what I do in therapy has to do with this one thing, is just helping people to communicate what they really feel uh, and and know what they really feel. So it usually begins with me helping people understand what they really feel, which can take a long time. A lot of people don't necessarily know what they really feel. They, you know, if I ask them how, you know, what are you feeling? It, you know, they might say something like, well, I feel angry. Okay, well, definitely you feel angry, but but what else are you feeling? I don't know. Well, when we explore it further, oftentimes, oftentimes what people will say is, well, I guess I feel, I guess I feel hurt. Maybe I feel hurt. What do you feel hurt by? I don't know. I don't know. I just feel kind of hurt. And then we explore it some, fur- you know, further. And they might say, well, I guess I there was something that my wife said to me last week that it just kind of hurt my feelings, and I didn't really know what to say because I thought I was just being a baby, and so I just let, I just tried to let it go, but it, I couldn't really let go of it, and then I just got angry later. And so, so it might take a long time just to understand what exactly you're feeling. And then how do you communicate that to somebody? And what do you communicate? Because there's, you don't, you sh- in my opinion, you shouldn't be communicating about every little thing that comes up for you. It's not often the best way to have a relationship. But, but uh, what things should be communicated about? And how do you communicate it? And how do you listen? How do you really understand when that person is communicating their feelings, how do you listen well? You know, can you listen without anxiety? Can you listen without letting it, without taking it personally? How can you understand, truly understand someone before defending yourself? How can you sift through what they're saying and try to figure out, well, what's, what's, the, what's a helpful response to this? And oftentimes when I talk about this, people will say something like, oh, we're just all, we're all just supposed to talk like therapists or we're just supposed to be like robots or we're all going to be a bunch of new agers telling each other how we feel. No, that isn't it. I mean, if that's what we want to do, great, but that isn't it. It's something like, you know, in the previous example, it'd be something like, hey, wife, just wanted to say something. It's not a big deal and I don't want to get in a fight about it, but... You know, last week when you made fun of me, it it hurt my feelings, and you know I'm trying to I'm trying to be cool about stuff like that. But in the effort of of getting stuff off my chest, I just I just wanted to tell you that I know you didn't mean it. I know you didn't mean to hurt my feelings, but but that's what ended up happening. And I just wish that you wouldn't say stuff like that anymore, or or if you could just try not to. And then a wife says, "Oh, okay. Well, all right." Um, heard you 
makes sense that it hurt your feelings. I, yeah, it's right. I didn't mean to hurt your feelings, but I will try not to do that in the future. You know, that, how long did that take? You know, 30 seconds, 60 seconds or something. And that's all that's necessary. And in a lot of families, that kind of communication does not happen in my experience. And because that kind of communication doesn't happen, a lot of miscommunication will happen. For instance, the husband will just be in a bad mood and he'll be moping around and the wife won't interpret it as the way he's intending. He's hoping that she'll, she'll say, oh, he's moping around. I must have said something that hurt his feelings. What did I do? What did I say? Oh, there was that one thing I said last week. Okay, I'm not going to say that one thing last week. That's not what she receives from that communication. She says, oh, he's, being, he's moping around. I wonder what's wrong with him. I think he's being a jerk and he needs to grow up. And I'm going to tell him, hey, pal, you need to grow up. <laughs> and so, and, and what the wife is feeling isn't, isn't, you know, the initial feeling isn't critical. The initial feeling is maybe she, her feelings are hurt because he's not responding very lovingly to her. And then she's, she noticed, oh, well, he, I feel a little hurt by something. What's going on? Oh, he's moping around. Okay. So a lot of it, gets miscommunicated. There's a lot of miscommunication. And so a lot of what I do in therapy is, is just working on that very issue because, believe me, a lot of people are suffering from that. Other areas besides family life cycle and the web and the wholeness of, of families and transgenerational patterns and communication, other areas are like attachment. We've talked about attachment before, I think. Uh, homeostasis, the structure of families, the roles people take, the boundaries between people, the pattern of families, and also social constructionism, multiculturalism, and postmodernism, these kinds of things. So those, all those concepts are very complicated, and they're all kind of rolled into the way that I uh, teach family systems theory. Well, that does it for another episode of Psychology in Seattle. Thanks for joining me, and please take care of yourself.